Good morning, good morning, Rabotai. Welcome to Breakfast in the Class. Breakfast in the Class today is sponsored by Wilma and Kenneth Ashendorf. Um, in memory and lezeche uh, nishmat, the victims of the tragedy Thursday evening at Miron, and for the refuah shilema of all those injured. Beautiful. We've also uh, had uh, over Shabbat quite a few people step forward to donate to the fund that we are trying to put together for the families of Miron to send to some people in Eretz Israel who are dealing directly with the families who lost primary uh, breadwinners in this terrible tragedy. One case that we know of as well, of a family um, who's going to be losing their apartment. Uh, they don't have the money to be able to stay in the place that they're renting. So there's terrible, terrible stories. Uh, and to, we're trying to do whatever we can uh, to help them. And Yashrechem Israel as well, leading the way is actually Kenny Ashendorf over Shabbat uh, with, uh, with your donation. Hazaku Baruch Kenny and anyone that would like to help in this very, very difficult time. The parasha talks about a special mitzvah, a mitzvah which carries with it what seems to be a tremendous uh, act of misirut nefesh. The pasuk says, Kitavo el when you come to Eretz Israel. And the land will need to be given rest. It will need to have a Shabbat. And in that time, in that Shabbat, the land can't be worked. You can't prune, you can't plow, you can't do any of the things that you would normally need to do in order to be able to make a living. Are you allowed to eat from the fruits of the land? Absolutely. So the halakha is, let's say a person wants to go and uh, make himself a... You know, a Spanish omelet. He's got the egg, but now he needs uh, all the rest of the vegetables. No problem. Go out to your backyard, to your, uh, yeah, to, to your, uh, you're from Latin America, right? No. Where are you from? Israel. Israel, okay. I was going to say only someone from Latin America would choose the first ingredient of a Spanish omelet and say chili. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> the spice. Okay. All the day they eat well. They, yeah. All the day yeah, exactly. Yes. But also, but they, it's very spicy, 100%. Yeah. Okay. So you're allowed to go outside and go get whatever you want. You want to go eat an apple? No problem. Eat an apple. It's not like you can't eat from your field. It's not like their families would starve because they didn't have food. But most of these farmers are selling their crops. And on Shemitah, you can't do that. You can't take the food in order to sell it. You have to open up the gates. Anyone that wants can take it. So now, I always felt, you know, Hazit, the electrician, he carries on working, but this year he don't have to pay for food, right? Your family has food, but how do you pay tuition? You can't pay in apples even. You can't gather the food and use them as money. You're only allowed to take what you need in order to be able to eat. So the greatest, uh, what's it called, challenge was for farmers. Now granted, in the time of the Torah, it was an agricultural society. They didn't have electricians. And not just because... There was no electricity. They didn't have, most of them didn't have uh, a, a range of other professions. There were other things. We have Rabbi Yochanan HaSandlar, a sandal maker. You have a baker. You have other things that weren't specifically. But the primary source of income was agricultural, okay? So all of a sudden, there's a year, an entire year, that the people can't eat. What are they supposed to do? Says the Pasuk, and if you'll say, what are we going to eat? Well, I don't have a shivi, I don't have, I, I need this for my parnasa. Says the pasuk, 
Don't worry, I will command my blessing and you'll experience uh, the blessing coming to you and you won't need, you won't have any problems. Now, I want to illustrate this by expressing the words of the Gemara. The Gemara says, on the people who keep Shemitah, which by the way is another worthy tzedakah in Israel, they have people keeping Shemitah, you know, and they, if they want to keep it properly, they need the help of others. So there's, there's a Karen for Shevi'it, for the people that keep Shemitah, and helping those people with their living expenses allows a person to experience this tremendous mitzvah of the Shemitah. Another way is that there's people who, through an ingenious program, they sell you a portion in Eretz Israel of four amot by four amot, parcel of land the size of maybe one of these balatot, okay? That obligates a person to keep Shemitah. They plant it for you, and then they keep Shemitah on your fruits. They take perot, trumot and ma'asrot. So you're sitting there, living in America, you spent your money to buy this little square piece of land. It's brilliant. Only Am Yisrael sits there figuring how to buy an irrelevant piece of land in Israel that you're never going to make money from. All you're going to do is give money from it. And, and we think, wow, that's a bad... You know, all of us, all nodding our heads, that's a fantastic investment. Something I'm never going to get because we seek, we are programmed, our DNA is programmed to seek out mitzvot. So listen to this pasuk. The pasuk says, who is this referring to? Gemara, excuse me, Drash in Vayikra Rabbah. Says Rabbi Yitzchak, Amar Rabbi Yitzchak, Bishomre Shvi'ita Katuv Medaber. This pasuk is referring to the people who keep Shemitah. What's the pasuk? Barechu et Adonai Malachav, Gibore Koach Osed Osed Devarol Lishmoa Bechol Bechol Devarom. Blessed Barechu et Hashem Malachav. Blessed is to Hashem His angels, Gibore Koach those of tremendous strength. Do his will, to listen to the voice, to the words of his uh, of God's commandments. So this is what the Midrash says. The way of the world is a person does a mitzvah for one day, for one week, for one month, one year. This guy is different than most people. You have a guy, you tell him, listen, Rohi, could you make a donation to that guy? Guy reaches in his pocket, gives a donation. Okay, it was hard for one second. You have a, you know, a guy, you tell him, listen, Rohi, someone's here from Israel collecting money. He needs a place to stay. Guy says, I have a guest bedroom. How long is he going to stay? One week. Okay, one week. I thought a couple of days. All right, you know what? Fadal. I call that the begrudging Fadal. Okay, all right, Fadal, okay? One week you have the guy in your house. Someone says, Barmanan, someone's ill in the hospital. They're going to be here for one month for treatment. You have an empty apartment in the city because you ran away during Corona. Could you leave the guy, your apartment? How long? For one month? Okay, you know what? One month. You could do a mitzvah for a week, for a minute, for a week, for a month. This guy, for the whole of Shemitah, one year, he looks out his back window at his field, and what does he see? The trees, the gardens that he tends to, that he spends so much time, they're overgrown. The fruits are being damaged. You're not allowed to prune the trees. You can't even take care of the place. You just have to leave it. He sees 
his next door neighbor coming in, waving at him through the window with his basket, taking his fruit, not paying anything. That's the halakha of Shemitah. This person goes through a very difficult mitzvah for an extended period of time. You know what? It's very easy, I always say, for people to have a flash of inspiration. You know, how many people have a diet for one day, for one week? Oh, yeah, I'm on this new diet. Oh, I'm going to the gym for this new thing. Okay, let's see. Call me in a year. Right? Keep something for a year is a long time. Says Rabbi Yitzchak, on these people, on the people who keep Shemitah for a year with consistency, with resilience, with durability, on those people we say, blessed is Hashem, Malachav, we call them angels. That they're strong to do God's will. They listen to His word. They do His word to listen to His word. Now, the altar from Slabodka asked a very interesting question. Rabbi Galinsky brings down this question. It's magnificent. Some of you may remember this pasuk. Anyone here remember that pasuk? Not from Tehillim. Where else do we have this pasuk? It gets quoted at least once a year, very often. Right around the time of Shabuot. This pasuk is the pasuk that the Gemara in Shabbat brings down that references the angels themselves. We know that when the Jewish people received the Torah in Har Sinai, God said, do you want the Torah? Do you not want the Torah? What did the Jews say? Naaseh, Minishma. We'll do and we will listen. Says the Gemara, in that moment, the heavens shook and the heavenly voice rang out and said, Mi gila raz Who taught this secret to my children? The secret, The secret that the angels use. True. What angels use? The pasuk is quoted on this, on those angels, on the Jews in that moment. They do his will. First it says do. <laughs> Then it says, listen, an angel doesn't decide whether or not it wants to. An angel doesn't decide whether or not it woke up on the right side of the bed. An angel doesn't decide whether or not today he wants to eat kosher. The angel only has one setting, what God says. There isn't another setting, what my wife says, what my friends say, what looks popular. The angel only has one setting. It can only do what God says. So it sits awaiting the request, the command of God, but not because it wants to decide whether or not to listen, but only in a functional way to be able to know what to do. It listens only in order to fulfill. So to the Jewish people when they said, they rose to the level of angels. It says that the angels came down and they tied two crowns on the head of each Jew, one for Naaseh, one for Nishma. In some way, think of the, uh, never mind the concept itself, but think of the, sim- the symbology of the angels putting crowns on the Jews. Effectively, they were crowning the Jews as king. They were placing them on a higher pedestal than them themselves. What is the concept of putting a crown on somebody? You're crowning the person king. You're elevating that person effectively above yourself. In the moment that the Jews chose to be like angels, They didn't match them, they surpassed them. Why? Because although they were like the angels, being like the angels made them better than the angels. Why? Because the angels were doing it without choosing to do so. 
The angel's lack of choice was not a matter of choice. The Jews chose to have a lack of choice. Fascinating. I want to share with you, Rabotai, that sometimes we in our lives also get to mimic those Jews. And really, that's what the Midrash is telling us here. Someone keeps Shemitah, on him the Pasuk says this, says Rabbi Yitzchak. Why? What does that have to do? Well, a guy does Shemitah, that compares to the Jews saying, That compares to the angels of heaven? And the answer is, we all have moments like this. You know, as a joke, I talk about the lack of choice. One of the greatest moments of lack of choice is experienced between a husband and wife when they have to choose the restaurant. Where do you want to go? Where do you want to go? <laughs> I don't care. Oh, I don't care. Okay, so just choose something. Well, I don't really know. I don't really, I mean, really, wherever you want to go. One of the most pointless conversations <laughs> since humanity has been invented. Then the guy comes in, he says, I see your move, and I raise you. I'll choose, okay, I'll choose that we're going to dairy. Now you choose amongst the dairy restaurant. <laughs> what a dumb conversation. Right? That's a lack of choice, isn't it? But it's not a lack of choice with regards to something that requires choice. Where you eat actually makes almost no difference. It's just a matter of preference. So in that moment, while we think we're being so sophisticated, choosing between sushi and, uh, you know, and who knows what, which this restaurant, that restaurant, this one is a nouveau riche cuisine, you know, it's uh, your, it's uh, your up-and-coming fusion of Mexican and Italian. <laughs> That's probably a terrible choice, but, right? You know, I, I'm this, uh, the ambiance, I, I heard that the, the chef, he's got the three Michelin stars, right? I always loved that, by the way. The first time someone said, this restaurant two Michelin stars. I was like, that sounds like a really bad hotel. <laughs> I don't know why, if there's, if there's one star system and it already exists that five stars means good, surely we should stick with the same star system. Right? Either way, the point is Rabotai. Now, I think that there's moments when we make choices, right? But the choices are not important. And there's moments when we make choices that are very difficult and they're very important. To choose in the moment of Shemitah to say, I'm going to keep Shemitah, not knowing where this is going to come from, recognizing that first I need to do Oseh Devaro, and only afterwards, Lishmoa Bekol Devaro, God says, Vitziviti et Berchati, you're only going to know next year if I got you. Right? Could you imagine that? They tell you, invest in your business, next year we'll give you PPP loans. I need the, I need the capital now. How do I know if I'm spending money I don't have? Right? This experience of stepping out on the plank and saying, Boreo Olam, if you told me, you got me, I believe you, I'm ready to do the mitzvah now, not for a week, but for an extended period of time, is in a certain way, Rabotai, choosing not to choose. Because if you have to make that choice every day, I don't know anyone strong enough. The only way is deciding not to choose. But my friends, we have this all the time. And let me give you an example of where it's an important lack of choice 
not like the restaurant non-choosing. You have a difficult brother-in-law. You have a difficult spouse, child, parent. They're two types of people. One type of person who each time they engage in the situation, they have to cool themselves down. Had that sitting off in the corner, he looks like he's having a baby, right? He's doing Lama's breathing, you know? In the middle of the conversation, he's like, he's breathing it out. He's got a paper bag, hyperventilating. He doesn't want to react, doesn't want to say what he wants to say, doesn't want to tell them what the person thinks of, doesn't want to tell them how stubborn, how selfish, how narcissistic they are. Each time he engages in a conversation with this self-centered, selfish person who it's always all about them, they have to choose not to get involved. Rabotai, you'd have to be a hero of epic proportions, a malach of uh, impeccable standing to not engage. But there's another methodology by which a person can actually get past this. And that is to choose not to choose. To decide that I'm placing this person in a column where I'm not going to react to them and I'm not going to let them push my buttons. So it's not an individual choice. It's a systemic choice. And when a person does that, before they even started the conversation, they wrote the conversation off. You've decided before you opened your mouth, I'm not going to let this guy rile me up because you know what? I know every time they rile me up, every time they push my buttons. So you know what? This is a write-off. Happens in business, doesn't it? You have all different things going on. There's certain times you realize something's not worth it. You write it off. If every time you thought about that, you went through all the numbers, you went to the things, you had that anxiety, had you? You kill, kill yourself. So the answer is, I write this off, this is a loss. There's nothing coming from this. So you know what? That's in the column. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm claiming this on my taxes. Rabotai, a person can write a person off and place them in the column of a tax deduction. I've heard of someone recently, they told me that they were in a, uh, a battle, a legal battle, and what were they fighting over? They were fighting over who owned uh, the rights to claim a loss for tax deduction. Now, for me and you, maybe that might not be so big, but imagine you owed millions in taxes, and there's a dispute over who has this loss, you know, which could actually offset, it's real money. To me and you, it's not real money. But if you have an accountant sitting next to you, that's actually dollars in your pocket. I mean, it is, but it's not. You know you could fight over a loss? Rabotai, that difficult brother-in-law of yours, sister-in-law of yours, cousin of yours, is putting money in your pocket. The level of kapara, the level of zechut, we should fight over that loss, over that write-off. Huli. But you have to make a decision. You know, some people, they love to complain. So if a guy comes to you who doesn't love to complain in shul and they say something, you take them very seriously. You know why? Because they don't love to complain. Guy loves to complain. What do you do? Haron will tell you. You wind yourself up like one of those dolls and you do this with your head. 
Haron will tell you, you're in a shul, you're working here for 25 years, you already know before the guy opens his mouth if you're listening. Right? I really shouldn't tell the secrets, right? I shouldn't tell them. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, if we could just edit that last bit of tape out, the jury could just strike that from the record, okay? My friends, that's what this, this pasuk is teaching us. That there's a chance that a person has to be able to engage in that way. Now, I want to share with you a, a, a powerful a sto- powerful element that illustrates this, this story, okay? And it's a crazy, wild story. And I only want to take the story for the sake, even though it's a wild story, I only want to illustrate the story for the sake of the lesson that comes from it. Like they say on the story, take it or leave it, all right? There's a great Mekubal, his name was Rev, uh, Moshe de Leon. Very famous, right? Heard of him? Of course, the rabbi knows. Very big Mekubal. He's approached one time by a person who was a terrible sinner. He'd done the worst things. And the guy knocks at the door, and the rabbi opens the door. I'm sure Rabbi Moshe de Leon took one look at this guy. Perennial sinner, right? Seasonal. He's evergreen, okay? He's probably doing this already. The guy, when he notices, the man looks broken. Is everything okay? The man says, you know what? I, one day I just got to thinking about my life and I realized I'm rotten to the core. The way I treated people, the way I acted, the things I did. What's going to be with me? He was hit by a truth bomb. And he said, Rabbi, please, you have to help me do Teshubah. The guy said, the rabbi says, listen, the kind of sins that you did, that we both know that you did, they're not simple. He says, you want to do Teshubah, you can do Teshubah. But in your portfolio, you have sins that you can't do teshuvah over. The man says, really? The rabbi says, yes. He says, what should I do? He says, listen, in the Gemara, the Gemara says, we mentioned this yesterday, there's some sins you do teshuvah, some sins that you need teshuvah and Yom Kippur, some sins you need teshuvah, Yom Kippur and suffering, Yisurin, and some sins only get forgiven by death. He says, so if you accept on yourself that you're willing to die the death that your sins require you to die, then you'll have Teshubah. This man, who was an incorrigible sinner, the worst of the worst, he says, okay. He says, which death do I need to accept on myself? The rabbi says, listen, the, the ser- most serious of the sins require, the halakha says is the worst is serifah. The guy thinks about it, he says, okay, I'm in. Could you imagine this? You call a guy, he asks him to come from Minyan, all right. The guy's like, I'm in. <laughs> Who says I'm in for Sinifah? <laughs> right? The guy says, listen, uh, you know, he goes, I know. I know what I need to, I know what I've done. I know what I need to fix. He says, I'm willing. I can't live with myself the way I am anymore. I'm willing. If it takes Sinifah for Tejubah, I'm in. The rabbi says, listen, Sinifah doesn't just mean we light you on fire, as if that's not bad enough. He goes, it's, they used to heat up lead until it was molten. And then the death penalty would happen. They would pour it through the person. Instantly the person would die uh, as the lead would pour, would, to go through. Terrible, horrible, right? The man says, okay, I'm in. I'm going to get my affairs in order. Goes home, does what he needs to do. I mean, I don't know what a guy like that needs to do, but he, he comes back. He's like, okay, it's done. I'm ready. 
The rabbi says, okay, lie down, lie down. He sits there, he puts on the fire, he's got a little pot there, heats up the lead. It's boiling, I don't know where he gets lead from. I don't know how any of this works, but this is not something we do here in the Safra Synagogue, right? It's not a service, like, you know, we have minyan at seven, molten lead at nine. So the guy, right, he lies him down, he heats up the lead, the guy sits down, he says, are you ready? The guy says, okay, so he says, do teshubah. The guy does the vidu, he's crying, he's praying, he's, it, you know, you could see the light is already shining, is a bal teshubah in his final moments on earth. They blindfold him, he says, are you ready? B'shem Yisrael, Baruch Shem, He's doing all the pesukim, it's Yom Kippur, it's Rosh Hashanah, it's Silichol rolled up in the one. He puts the blindfold on the man, the guy is lying there like this. He says, open your mouth, right? He can smell the burning lead. He opens up his mouth and the rabbi pours into his throat. Do you know the bisamim that they give out everybody in the, uh, under, you know, the rose water? What do they call it? The, they use it. No, but there's a name. What? Mawar. The, they use it for the al-masir, right? What is it called? Give me, yeah, but the Arabic. There's the, Mawar, is that what it's called? I don't know. Okay, whatever. Varda, Varda. Yeah, okay. They pour, he pours into his mouth this thing which is made out of, a, a, you know, a, of a boiling roses and water. He pours rose water in his mouth. The guy rips off his mask. He's Rabbi, you making fun of me? I, I told you I'm ready to go. You're pouring the rose water. I didn't, you know, and not only that, now I have to go do Teshuvah because I didn't say Borei Mereb Samim. He didn't say that. That's just my addition. That's it. I just want to, want to stick to the script. Okay, right? Anyway, so he says, what are you doing? I'm ready, the thing, da, da, da. The rabbi said to him, he goes, there's no such thing. We're not a bad dean. We don't kill you. He says, but stand up from your seat. You accepted on yourself the highest form. You were ready to give everything for it. You did teshuvah from a place of thinking that this was your end. Stand up now. God already did, to, he accepted your teshuvah. You're clean. Now go, study Torah, do mitzvot, give tzedakah, be the person you could be. Beautiful. The man stood by the rabbi's side for the rest of his life. And when the rabbi passed away, Rav Moshe de Leon, his closest student was this rasha who became overnight a sadiq with rose water. When Rav Moshe de Leon passed away, the student was so heartbroken that he prayed all day and all night that he would join his rabbi in Gan Eden because his rabbi had promised him that if he did Teshuvah, he would see him in Gan Eden. He prayed all day, he prayed all night. The next day, the man was, he passed away. There was a few of the rabbis who, a few of the rabbis in the Chabura who were visited by this man in the dream, and he told them, uh, he showed them that he's sitting together with Rav Moshe de Leon in Gan Eden, and they were studying together. Exactly as it was on earth, so it was in Shamayim. Why do I bring you this story? Sometimes the story's lesson is to be able to mimic what happens in the story. But we're not planning on doing any of that anytime soon. We're not baptizing anybody with rose water either. <laughs> The point of the story, Rabbi Galinsky says, is magnificent. He says, you know, when a person does teshuvah, when they do a mitzvah, a lot of times, what they're expecting is to have their insides burnt out 
with molten lead. We look at the mitzvot and we expect everything to be so difficult. And we go into it thinking that we are martyrs. There's this mistake in Jewish theology today that what God wants from us is what I call holy misery. He wants us to be miserable and that misery is holy. Eat the worst food. Ah, this is kosher. <laughs> How do you know if it's kosher? Well, what does it taste like? <laughs> right? That's what it means. I remember first time I was teaching someone the halachot of, of basar b'chalav. There's something called a, a kfela. Does anyone know what that means? In, in, uh, in the halachot of basar b'chalav, there's a, a test that they would give to a chef. And they would have the chef taste the food. Could the chef pick out something that's 160th? So if you don't know how much milk is in the pot, they would bring it to an expert. And the expert would tell you, I could taste it. Because 160th represents that at that stage you could still taste the food in the item. So if you don't know, one of the ways to do it is what's called the kfela, where they would go to a, a chef, right? So... <laughs> I remember the first time learning it, I was cracking up and they asked me in yeshiva, what are you laughing about? I said, how funny is this? They're not giving it to a chef to taste if he could taste if there's milk in it. They're giving it to an expert in food. If it tastes horrible, that's how he knows it's kosher. <laughs> if it tastes delicious, that's how he knows it's not kosher. That's what it means they bring it to a chef. No, it's not true. <laughs> Holy misery is not what God wants from us. We need to be prepared to do the hard work. But actually, when you open up your mouth, when you're ready to take uh, whatever's being served, so to speak, you wind up finding out that it's the most exquisite beracha. And the guy who says to himself, I'm going to keep Shemitah, I don't know where my parnasah is coming from. The pasuk says, Vitsiviti et birchati, I'm going to give you my bracha in the sixth year and the seventh year and the eighth year. You get three years of beracha instead of one. You know, a person thinks that if they, if they just keep their mouth shut in a fight with their wife, you know what? You know, it won't make it worse. It's not that it won't make it worse. It's that the relationship improves tenfold. The only thing is that in the moment that a person's doing it, you have a blindfold on and you can't see. right? You don't know that the blessing is there until afterwards. I think that's what the Pasuk means, and we'll end with this, where we say the words on Shabbat, Ta'amu ure'u ki Hashem. Sometimes the goodness of God, you can't see that it looks delicious before you taste it. It's only after it's already in your mouth, like this gentleman, in our obscure and, obs and uh, interesting story, that a person understands and sees and feels the goodness, what good mitzvot do to us. Rabotai, mitzvot don't just improve our world to come. They improve our present world as well. May Hashem bless us to experience only the be'achot that our mitzvot bring us. Baruch Adonai Amen ve'amen.